Our passage of scripture this morning is from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, a traditional Christmas passage. And let me read these verses for you. Isaiah 9, 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Many, many years ago, When I was in college at Western Illinois University, uh, I was at a Navigator's Christmas party, and one of the songs I still remember today that we sang, and it was, King Jesus is all, my all in all, I know he'll answer me when I call. And and for some reason, I don't remember all the words to that song, but that, that song has stuck in my mind and even in my heart because I have this desire to be obedient to and to exalt Jesus as king. And all through scripture we read that Jesus is our king. We live in a nation that that doesn't like kings. We put kings down, but part of the reason for that is because when we were founded as a nation, we knew we had one king, and that was Jesus and so everybody else was not a king under him. And we've, we've got away from that. And so it's important to study these passages, and they're all through Scripture, from the very beginning of Scripture to the end, that talk about Jesus as king. Here in Isaiah 9, and I read 9, 6, and 7, uh, and usually at Christmas time, if I preach on this, the emphasis is all on chapter, uh, verse 6. Uh, And today I'm not going to say much about it. For unto us a child is born, speaks of Christ's birth. It speaks of him becoming a human being. When it says the son is given, it's a reference to Christ being the son of God who is given as a gift to us. And then when it says wonderful counselor, it's referring to his miracles, his teaching, his preaching, Uh, He is that wonderful counselor. He gives us those words that we won't find in the world or in ungodly places. And then he's called mighty God. And the word there, uh, you know, mighty God, here is, it could be translated hero God. And you see this through scriptures sometimes at the Red Sea, at the last minute when everything seems hopeless, God divides the Red Sea And when we were hopeless in our sins, Jesus died for us on the cross. And he's that hero that comes to us to save us when we need him most. He's called Everlasting Father. And usually we think God the Father is the Everlasting Father. But this is referring to Jesus Christ because he's eternal. And he's always been as the second person of the Godhead. And he always will be. And then he's called Prince of Peace. And this is a reference to the peace he won for us on the cross and the peace that will one day come eternally with his kingdom to us, his people. 
And then verse 6 finishes with the government being upon his shoulders, or his shoulder, meaning that he is our king and king of kings, and he will carry the weight of true and godly and blessed and just and peaceful government. And so because I've spoken on verse 6 usually uh, at Christmas time, and I didn't get into verse 7 that often, today I want to spend more time with the next verse, verse 7, which speaks to the character of Christ's kingdom. And the first thing we see here is that his kingdom, number one, if you have your outline, his kingdom is an increasing kingdom. It says here, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And it actually says from that day forward, it it will continue to increase And his kingdom on earth, I believe you could say it started in one sense. Probably people could give different starting points. But it started with his birth when he was placed in a manger. Uh, Luke 2 verse 7 says, And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. In the end. Now, before he was even conceived, though, in Mary's womb, the angel told Mary he would be a king and more. He didn't become a king because people rallied around him or anything like that. He always uh, is our king. It says in Luke 1, 30-33, Then the angel told her, or said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and called the Son of the Highest, meaning the Son of God. And the Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. You'll notice a lot of the passages in Scripture that talk about Christ's kingdom talk about this forever kingdom, and I'll talk about that more, but I wanted you to notice it, even in this first verse that mentions it that way. The prophet Daniel also prophesied an increasing kingdom. It says, and in those days, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. If you, if you read Jan, Daniel 2 and 7, it's, it's talking about these other kingdoms of the earth and they will be ended. And I believe every kingdom is, is, is at least pictured here because it's the final kingdom. Uh, Jesus is his. Daniel 2.35 before that talks about the stone that struck the image. That was the picture that uh, Nebuchadnezzar was given this image of a statue that represented all these other kingdoms and this stone hit it and the stone becomes a great mountain and that great mountain is that the stone increasing is that kingdom of Christ. Jesus himself spoke of this kingdom increasing with a different picture, Matthew thirteen thirty three. It says, and another parable he spoke to them, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. And, you know, what we call, what is called leaven is like what we have yeast. And you put it in a a piece of dough, and what happens to that dough? It it gets bigger and bigger, because the leaven, it it mixes in every part of it. 
Now, leaven in Scripture, I, I think I said this recently, it talks about sin, too. It, it mixes in every part. But Christ's kingdom mixes in every part. And when we look at Scripture, we see sometimes it seems the kingdom of Satan is increasing, too. But God's kingdom is increasing and getting stronger. And this is what Jesus is saying. And sometimes I've heard statistics, you know, places that you don't think of, like China or the Middle East, God's people are increasing there, becoming bigger and stronger and more, even though they're being persecuted. And so sometimes we look around us in America and we say, the churches are declining, they're, they're getting smaller. But in other places in the world, the church is getting stronger. And just because it's not here doesn't mean it's not happening. And I think even sometimes here, maybe it's growing in ways that we don't, we don't understand because we have an ungodly world that's, that's not talking about growth in churches or, or spiritual growth. And so this kingdom is different from others in how it increases. For as it says, Paul says, 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every a high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Other kingdoms grow by, usually by war, conquering other nations, destroying them, boom, 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 and, and getting over. But we, uh, by our words, by our actions, by our lives, that's how the kingdom is increased. increased. Lead on, O King Eternal, the song that we'll sing at the end. Uh, has this, this, uh, these words in it. For not with swords loud clashing, nor roll of stirring drums, with deeds and of love and mercy, the heavenly kingdom comes. And so that's how Christ's kingdom increases. And it's different than you think, uh, than other kingdoms of this world increase. And so first, my first point is, this kingdom of Christ is an increasing kingdom. Sometimes Christmas time is the time it increases. Uh, one of the reasons, you know, several Reformed pastors, some of them don't like Christmas time, and others do, and, and we even have some in our church that are not here today. They don't like it if I preach a Christmas sermon. But when I became a Christian, uh, it was around Christmas time after going to a party that I probably shouldn't have been at. And uh, at that party, somebody gave me a little piece of paper with the poem written in a circle like this and it was written by a prisoner and I don't remember the poem and I never could find it after that but it was he was talking about the crimes he had committed and and how Christ had died for his sin and even though he was stuck in prison that he had this relationship with God and I remember being at the party and I don't know why at a party somebody would hand me something so spiritual and powerful but it hit me and that whole Christmas I spent the time not so much having fun, but just thinking about Christ and what he did. And, and God was working in my heart. And I believe our Christmas time can be like that for people. Even though, you know, we don't know that uh, for sure. It's not in scripture that it was born on Je uh, December 25th. Uh, but this time of season by God's providence is a time where people will think about these things a little more. And it's opportunity for us to share 
the gospel, sometimes maybe just in a Christmas card or something, we put something about Christ in there, and it can stir up something. One little piece of paper really stirred my heart at a Christmas time, written by a prisoner that I well I won't meet. I will meet him in heaven and know <laughs> know that he was the one. But now I don't even remember his name. So secondly. His kingdom is a peace-bringing, peace-increasing kingdom. Prince of peace is how verse 6 ends. And then it says, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. I thought of giving, you know, talking about increase of government and peace at the same time. But peace seemed more important, uh, important enough to talk about on its own. Peace with God is what we've attained through Jesus on the cross. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus was on the cross, and most of you know this because I can see some nodding their heads, you know this already. When Jesus hung on that cross, the, uh, the lightning bolt of God's wrath hit him very hard and very powerfully, but because that hit him, it doesn't have to hit us. We have peace with God. We deserved his wrath. We deserved what Christ had on the cross. We deserved hell. But he took that, that suffering and that shame for us. And so we have peace with God. Peace with God is what he speaks first to his apostles after his resurrection. Uh, I know it's Christmas time, but Jesus rose from the dead, and we know that as a fact. And... The same day, it says, John 20, verse 19, the same day at the evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, when the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst of them and said, Peace be with you. And if you understand and have studied those passages, he says that several times after his resurrection, Peace be with you. And he seems to say it more after his resurrection he gives them a ministry of peace, and he does this. Why after the resurrection? Because he's accomplished what we needed for peace on the cross. A whole different way of, of having peace. Promised peace is part of the greeting of the angel who announced Christ's birth. Luke 2, 10 through 14 is that passage that talks about the angel speaking to the shepherds shortly after Jesus was born. And it says, Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you that you will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger, and suddenly there was with the angels a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Everything about this passage uh, is shouting of peace when you think of it. It's not just when he says uh, on earth peace. But even before that, when they were afraid, they see this great mighty angel and they were afraid. And, and he tells them, do not be afraid. That's a peace word there. He's telling them not to be frightened. And he says, I bring you good tidings of great joy. 
And when peace is talked about in scripture, peace in- includes not just, you know, we think of peace as being able to sit quietly on a bench or something in the woods or, or in front of our house or even on a, a quiet place in, in our, on our bed. But it's more than that in scripture. It includes prosperity and joy and, and good tidings. And here, that's what we see. He says, good tidings of great joy. Uh, that's part of this piece. And then he says, you'll have a savior, meaning you'll be saved from your sin. And then this is the sign to you. You see a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. Well, God could have come like the angel and even more scary than the angel to us and saying, you need salvation, you're sinners, my wrath is on its way. Uh, and he, he could have come like he did at Sinai with lightnings and thunders and voices. But here he comes as a little baby. How more can you show that you're coming in peace when you come vulnerably, when you come humbly, when you come as becoming one of us? as a little baby. And so we see this. This is how his kingdom advances, not by awing us uh, with the terror that he could easily do, but becoming like a child. However, peace is not with sin or sinner or in any way promised or offered to the unrepentant uh, for the weapons of our warfare, notice it says. And 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 then 2 Corinthians 10, 6, just a a couple of verses after what I read earlier, it says, and being ready to punish all disobedience when your, obe- when your obedience is fulfilled. Isaiah tells us there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. Isaiah 48, 22. And then you know, that says the Lord. Isaiah 57, 21 says, my God, there is no peace for the wicked, says my God. And so this isn't a peace that's promised to everybody. This isn't a peace that comes to everyone. If you're railing your fist at God, if you're fighting with him uh, and not repenting, he's not going to give you this peace. Jesus sort of said this himself when he says in Luke 12, 51 and 53, he says, do not suppose that I came to give peace on earth. I tell you, not at all, but rather division. For from now on, five in one house will be divided, three against two, two against three. Father uh, will be divided against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And this is not talking about ordinary family fighting either. This is talking about people who are believers and people who are unbelievers. And the unbelievers are those who are considered in Scripture the wicked and there's no peace for them. And so here we see God saying, you'll come to Christ, come and be saved. Uh, Don't be in this category of the wicked and miss out on this peace. Jesus' peace is not a peace with sin. You know, oftentimes today, because of the political correctness, you have to approve of certain sins in order to be at peace with those people. You have to say, I love not just you, I love your sin. I want you to do it more and more. Uh, and, and if you don't say that, you're, you're the hater. You're the enemy. Now, if somebody were drunk in your house and they were acting like they wanted to go out and drive, uh, they might fight with you about driving. They want you not to take their keys. 
So because they, they say you hate them if you're not giving them their keys, do you give them their keys? No, you hold on to those things. And, and you say, you know, I love you too much to let you go the way you're going. And today we have people who are rushing towards hell. And sometimes some in the church think they need to cheer them on. Because that's what they, they are saying. They need cheered on as they do wicked things. We can't be that way. We have to be willing to fight against sin. And that's not the kind of peace uh, uh, that it, Jesus is talking about. About peace that Jesus is talking does not make homosexuality or abortion or murder or adultery or any other sin okay. That's not what peace is. Peace means we stand against these things. True God's peace will. Number three, David's kingdom is Davidic, or his kingdom, the, the Savior's kingdom, the Son's kingdom, upon the throne of David and over his kingdom. Now I'll say first, this does not mean that this is only a Jewish kingdom. Um, we see this even in the Old Testament. Uh, in Isaiah 49, verse 6, God is speaking to Christ, and it says, Indeed, he says, It's too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. And so the kingdom is not limited to the Jews. Uh, And even in the Old Testament, though it's only in sparse places, uh, and Jesus' ministry was first to the Jews, it was always intended uh, to be for everyone. David himself was part Gentile. Uh, Ruth the Moabitess, uh, Ruth 22-21, was a Gentile, was uh, David's great-grandmother. Boaz, uh, it says in Ruth 4.13, Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. And then in verse 17, the name of the son is given and they called his name Obed. He's the father of Jesse, the father of David. And so Ruth herself, who is David's great-grandmother, has Gentile blood. And if you look at the Psalms, some of the Psalms of David, they are the ones that say all the earth, uh, the nations, not just one nation, will uh, are called to praise him. And I believe David had that heart even in those days uh, that all the world would be saved. All the world would, would worship the king, not himself, but God who was the king. And so it's Davidic in that sense. David's kingdom is not physical descendants, but spiritual. Those who share David's heart for God. You know, Israel had many kings. And when you think of the different kings that Israel had, uh, there were very few, the minority of them were like David. And when they were good kings, they were said to be like David. When they were bad kings, they were not like David. When they were good kings, they led the people to worship God. When they were bad kings, they led the people to worship idols. And we see a Davidic kingdom is one where the leaders uh, draw the people more and more to worshiping God. I think that's especially true here. Obviously, that's what Jesus is doing. That's what he has in common uh, with 
with David. It says in Acts 13, 22 and 23, and when he had removed him, he raised up for them, meaning he removed Saul. He raised up for them David as a king to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up a savior, Jesus. Now it's interesting. This is in comparison in that verse. You don't see it, you know, obviously, but Saul was the previous king. And Saul was told to kill the Ammonites. And he was told by God to do this because they were a wicked people. He was to kill every single one of them. He killed almost all of them. You could say he was pretty obedient in that he killed probably over 99% of them, but he let the king alive and, and some animals that he was going to use for worship and because he left the king alive because he respected another king, I guess. God said he was disobedient and he removed him eventually from being king. And David, he says, is a man who will do all my will. David sought to do the will of God. And being Davidic means you're obedient. And Christ was certainly that way. Um, David is called, as I said, a man after God's own heart who will do my will. Jesus himself says in Luke 8, 20 through 21, uh, and it says, and it was told him by some, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. That means Mary was standing there wanting to see Jesus as he's preaching. And it says, but he answered and said, my mother and brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. I believe later Mary became a follower of Christ in a very real spiritual sense. But here... Her mo- the mother, Mary, and the brothers weren't on Jesus' side. They're not inside listening to the word. They're outside of the church, you could say. Stand- Can you imagine somebody, like if my family was standing outside of the church waiting for me to be done talking to you, uh, rather than coming in and hearing the word, and that's what the situation was with Jesus when, when, when they told him, your mother and brother are waiting outside. Well, what the, were they doing? They were telling him, you need to leave all these people in here and go out and find out why your mother and brother are concerned. And he basically told them, my mothers and brothers are you, the ones that are hearing God's word. And so it's the spiritual people. It's the spiritual, they're the kingdom, the ones who are obedient to the king who are following him. And Jesus was such himself when he was a man, he was obedient to God. In Philippians 2.8, it says, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and, give, and, 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 give, and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on earth, and those under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, which is very similar to being king. Uh, basically, he's both of those things. And it says, to the glory of God the Father. 
And it was his obedience, not just that he's the son of God, but he was obedient, though he was the son. Christ's obedience is meant to be an example to us. Uh, before Philippians 2.8 is Philippians 2.5, which says, let this mind be in you. And if, if you look at verses 1 through 4, you see a similar thing. Jesus is portrayed as an example. And then after verse 11, it says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. God wants us, if he's our king, to be obedient to him in every way. And, and so when we worship Christ as king, we, if we call him king, it's just like he says, you call me Lord, Lord, but you do not do what I say. Well, if you put king, king in the same place, it's the same thing. We need to obey him. And, and so he calls us this way. God's way is communicated in Ephesians uh, 6.1. Uh, children, obey your parents, for this is right in the Lord. Oh, I, I skipped a whole bunch. Ver, number four, his kingdom is ordered and established with judgment and justice. He says to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. That's uh, Isaiah 9.7c. And this is in stark contrast to the lies, the crime, the corruption, uh, which are currently, you know, this is the model that we, I, I, some, I think I had an autocorrection or something, module instead of model. I know how to spell model, so that's the, I'm going to blame my computer. Uh, uh, we, we see this in our country, and we see, uh, chaos and corruption are part of Satan's rule, not God's, not Christ's. But Christ's rule includes, like, this is just one example, because I know the, well, the sermon's not super long, or I'm fast. But um, children, obey your parents. What does that mean when it says children, obey your parents? Well, it means that God has given parents the right to govern their children. We're the, we're the orders of it. Not the school, not the state, not any of that. And Satan wants the state to rule everything. There's no elders in church that have authority. There's no city government. There's no church government. There's no family government. There's not even any self-discipline, that which is self-government. Uh, only the state. And you live, you, you don't even need to discipline yourself because they want immorality. Uh, but here, God's way involves parents being governors over their children, uh, husbands being in authority over wives, uh, with a loving, like loving like Christ loved the church. It includes elders being in authority in a church. Uh, all, uh, and there's church, there's church government that should be able to speak to the nation from God. Uh, but a lot of this is pushed, pushed away. Satan's way, uh, it says Romans uh, 1.30, Backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. And we see a lot of that around us. Does that mean that God's kingdom isn't growing and increasing? I don't think so. We're still growing and increasing. And if not in our country, we're in other countries. Uh, But even here, true godly people are still going to follow him. They're still spiritually growing. But the other side is also growing at the same time. Uh, in, 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 their, in their ways. 
The judgment and justice Christ brings starts not with politicians, but with church attending, Bible believing, we will do God's will, Christians, we pray your kingdom come, your will be done. And when we pray your kingdom come what, and your will be done, what are we praying for first? First, we want his kingdom in our own hearts. Uh, I can't pray for God's kingdom to come to all of you if I'm not praying that he's ruling in my own heart and also ruling in such a way that I'm praying not just your kingdom come, but your will be done. The two go together. I am praying that I will be a doer of God's will. I will be obedient. As it said in Philippians, it's he who works in our hearts both to will, to desire to do, and to do his good pleasure. And so when we pray, uh, we're agreeing. We want to obey you, God. We want Christ to be our king. And at Christmas time, when everybody is celebrating Jesus Christ in one way or another, even though that Santa Claus and gifts and all these things, Christ is still here. Uh, we can take that as a special time to say, Christ is my king. I want him to be king, and I want him to rule in my heart. And as individually we do that, we're increasing the kingdom uh, when we're more and more obedient to him. His kingdom is forever, eternal. I've already mentioned this, so I won't spend a lot of time on it. Number five, there will be no end. From that time forward, even forever, Isaiah 9, 7. Then the seventh angel sounded, Revelation eleven fifteen, And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. One day, every rule that's apart from Christ will be destroyed. It will be put away. And Christ will rule forever. Even now, he's ruling in the hearts of his people. But one day, you know, somebody, you'll vote for this president, that president, whoever we vote for is not going to rule forever. But Christ will rule forever. So some people, I've heard of people, and I'm not like this, I try to vote on principle when I vote. But some people vote on, I think this person's going to win, so I'll vote for the winner rather than the loser. Well, if you're that person... Christ is going to win. It's sure. Uh, You want to be on the side of the winners? Christ is the one. So vote for him, not by lodging a ballot, but by obedience, by prayer, by asking him, uh, thy will be done, thy kingdom kingdom come, thy will be done, praying that you will be part of that. Um, So we do that, and it's eternal. And I I covered it, so I'm not going to go into it. I could speak eternally on it, maybe. (laughs) Uh, But number six, God's zeal will accomplish this. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. His zeal, it means his passion, his zealousness, even his jealousy, not in a, uh, when we think of jealousy, we think of something bad, but when a good husband is jealous for his wife in a good way, because he knows he's good to her, that's righteous. And Christ is that good husband uh, who's jealous in a good way uh, for us. And God is definitely that. And he wants us to be with him. He wants us to be his. And, and, uh, and 
He will be our God. We will be his people. Here he's called the, the God or the Lord of hosts, which means the God of armies. And when we think of armies, we think of soldiers, usually human beings with tanks and guns and, and all of that. And God is over all of those, including the armies and the soldiers and all these things. But when God is the Lord of hosts, what is under his control is everything. Every animal in the world, all the snow or the hurricane or the, or the weather that comes, that's part of his host. So in the book of Jonah, Jonah wanted to go the wrong way. He was a disobedient prophet. But it says, the Lord sent out a great wind. And that wind was part of his host. It was part of his army. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship was about to be broken up. And then, you know, later there's the fearing sailors. Uh, they're, they're with Jonah and they're afraid because this storm is going to break up their ship and they're praying to their gods and they've, they've cast lots and they found out Jonah is the problem. And Jonah says, throw me overboard. That way you'll end this problem for yourselves. And he thinks he's about to commit suicide in order so everybody else can live because if he doesn't, they don't do that, they'd all die anyway. And so it says in verse 15 and 16, so they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. They might not have thought, well, this is really going to happen. We're going to throw him in the sea and that's going to solve everything. But when they saw it, they were more frightened than they were before. This is amazing what has just happened. And then there was a great fish. Jonah didn't fall right into the ocean and drown. There was a fish prepared, and you think the timing had to be right when the sailors were scared enough to throw him in, uh, when they gave up trying to row and, and save him in spite of what he said, when they actually threw him in, the fish was there to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, and then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God from the fish's belly. He prayed, Lord, <laughs> help me, save me. Uh, I need you to help me. And, 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 the, and the fish vomits of Jonah uh, somewhere at least near Nineveh, I believe right on the shores of Nineveh. And those people worshipped fish, fishing and fish and things of the sea. So imagine coming, if some of them, I, it doesn't say this, but imagine if some of them actually saw Jonah vomited up by a fish, and then he's preaching to them to repent. That would be pretty powerful. And they did. They all repented in, in sackcloth and ashes, and that whole nation that was extremely wicked. One of the reasons that Jonah did not want to go to them was they were a wicked people. As I said, they worshipped fishing and fish and stuff like this. And when they captured their enemies, they were so cruel that they pushed fish hooks in their mouths or in their noses and led these people away naked as they were connected fish hook to fish hook to fish hook, saying, basically saying to these people that were their enemies, to us, you are just like the fish. You are our things, not people. We can capture you, we control you. And, and, but they all repented and they... They came to the Lord, at least that generation. And my point here is, God is the God of armies. He's the God of hosts. And the one thing that he desires is that we, uh, and he says it in these verses, Christ would be king. He's going to rule. 
And how sure is this going to happen? Well, we see fighting against it, just like Jonah fought against God for a while. But God is the God of armies, and he's going to rule, and this kingdom will be established, and it will be forever. God used these things, including the reluctant prophet Jonah himself. I imagine he was quite a sight coming out of that, that fish's belly, even if somebody didn't see him coming out. I, you know, I, who knows what it's like to be three days in a fish's belly. But he comes out and he preaches, and their salvation comes to those people. And just like I read before, Revelation eleven fifteen, then the seventh, eight, seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. He shall reign forever and ever. One day, all the people, those who are in the new heaven and the new earth, will be people who worship Jesus. They will follow the king. They will be obedient to him. Those who are outside in eternity will spend an eternity in hell. And either you follow Jesus as your king or you are in this other group and uh, you know, eventually eternal, eternity will come and that kingdom of Christ is an eternal kingdom where he rules and no one who is disobedient, who is sinful, will be in that kingdom. It, it says that in the book of Revelation. Only those who are, are obedient to him. Now are we perfectly obedient? No. But we have the obedience of Christ imputed to us when we believe in him. And when God looks at me, uh, even you know, at the end of time when I die, and if God asks me the question, why should I let you into my heaven? I won't say because I'm a pastor or because I preach this or that sermon or because I did any good deed. I will say, because your son died for me and he was perfectly obedient. My obedience is only because the spirit comes in me and helps me to be obedient. And sometimes even with that, there's still sin and, and we all have this, but we keep going. We pray that God would, his kingdom would come and his will will be done. Uh, if it's done in each of our lives, we're, we're increasing this kingdom. This is my first, last week wasn't a Christmas message, so uh, my first Christmas message to you. Uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that your word teaches us about Christ and his kingdom. It teaches us about the world around us. It teaches us even about ourselves. And Father, this Christmas, there will be gifts, there will be parties, there will be fun things. But let us also take time to think about you, think about your kingdom, this kingdom that is increasing and advancing, this kingdom of peace, this kingdom of your rule. And Father, sometimes when we look around us in the world, it does not seem at all that your kingdom is increasing. It seems like we are being beaten, we are being beaten down uh, and defeated. And yet even when Christ is on the cross, when he was in this world, when he was on the cross, it seemed he was defeated. But he rose from the dead. And Father, he tells us that uh, his, the kingdoms of hell will not prevail against his kingdom. And so, Father, we thank you for that. And we pray you'd bless us each with the heart to follow you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.